Hello and welcome to How to Start Up, a podcast for anyone starting a company in 2020. This is a collection of conversations with people who have all successfully started, run and even sold their own companies, sharing not only professional but personal experiences on what we should be doing now, next or never. In this episode, we hear from Paul Whedon, who is the first How to Start Up podcast guest to not have only started his company at a very young age of 24, but also to have successfully sold it a long time before he hit 40. Paul recognises that being your own boss is not always as straightforward as it can sound, because as your business grows, so do your responsibilities. Having sold his business, he's now salaried again and is able to offer an interesting perspective on both employment options. Hi Paul, welcome to How to Start Up. It would be great if you could give a brief introduction to yourself and the company you've just successfully sold. Hi, my name is Paul Whedon. I set up a IT services and cloud transformation business in March of 2007 and I sold it in 2019. So 12 years of running my own business. So I've been through many of the pains that your previous guests have talked about and can dare say I've fallen foul of some of those myself. It's a company called Foration. The name was a compound word of forage and exploration. So it was like, we're all about the detail, but also we're about the big horizons. That was the outcome of a random word generator online. Basically, I knew I needed a .com. I just carried on clicking the button until I found a word that I liked. And then we tried to backfill a decent marketing message around it. That's where Foration came from. I love it. So you retrofitted your branding, having discovered a random company name on a platform. Yeah, which I think is quite fitting for an IT company, right? Incredibly strategic. <laughs> and how old were you when you started your company? The tender age of 24. And that's a young age to start. What, how did that come really? about? So I'd actually been working for six years by then. I left college. I was studying a GMVQ in IT and an A-level in business studies, and I found it all a bit boring. So the irony of me then ending up running an IT business is certainly not lost. Prior to that, I did an apprenticeship. And as a route into business... I actually think the apprenticeship scheme to non quote unquote traditional roles is a really good way. I got a huge amount of experience and by the age of 20, I'd had six different jobs at IBM. So I'd really got to see the way in which a multinational runs. All by the age of 20? By the end of 20. It was basically a grad scheme. You, You did six months here and there on different projects and you got to see how a multinational run and that was quite frustrating how slow things were. And so I decided to go and work for a smaller company up in London, a bit like Dick Whittington, off to London to make my fortune. Worked at a management consultancy for a year. I then got headhunted by the startup that was, as all good startups do, borrowing office space around the corner. That really gave me the opportunity. I don't know quite what I'd done to deserve this, but at age 21, they said, oh, we'd like you to come and be our IT manager. I was like, oh, that sounds great. How many people are you? 14. And the company, whilst I was there, went from 14 people in a cubbyhole to 110 people with offices in New York and London, plus satellite offices in continental Europe, and did all of the technology that we needed in order to run. The cloud didn't really exist. So nowadays, setting up a business, you don't need to worry about half the things that you had to worry about in 2004, this was. You just sort of pay for Google Apps for £5 a month and you have everything set up for you at the click of a button. We spent hundreds of thousands of pounds getting the same sort of thing set up. So that was my introduction into the world of work. And then I thought to myself, actually, I really enjoy solving these problems, but I've solved most of the problems now for this startup. They've 
scaled up to where they need to be. The rate of change slowed down and I got a bit bored. And I think I, I wanted to sort of always have that next project. And so that's when I decided to set up my business. And had you already resigned at this point or had you done a business plan pre-resignation? I resigned having done a very rough back of the fag packet calculation about how much money I'd need. I've got five grand. I'm really sensible. I'll have five months of living expenses. And then I forgot that I hadn't factored in rent. Needless to say, my financial and accounting skills improved pretty quickly thereafter. So yeah, I was living with a mate of mine. It was his house and I just sat at the dining room table and was like, right, well, what do I do? And what was that? What was the first thing that you did when you had started this business? I'd created a good name for myself in the previous jobs that I'd had up in London. So I just emailed out and said, this is what I'm doing. would love to have a chat. And two of my three first customers were people that I'd worked with at my first job in London. And they'd been impressed with the way in which I'd looked after them in that role. We had a conversation. One of them was wanting some rather basic stuff set up. And the other person was after a huge Salesforce implementation. So off the back of it, I had some pretty good customers from day one, just from the work that I'd done previously. So that was you self-employed, but a team of one. A team of one, yes. And also, first thing I did, and I still do it today, is I taught myself to say we for everything when I was talking about me. The idea was I wanted to sound bigger than one person. My housemate, who I lived with at the time, the guy called Tom, he went one step further when he set up his business. He got all of his friends over one day and just recorded the ambient noise in his house. And then whenever he was on the phone to cold call, he would play that on loudspeakers to make it sound like there was a really busy office environment (laughs) behind him. So there are definitely some hacks you can do. All good pre-pandemic though. Yeah, all pre-pandemic, but also there was pull from accounts or pull from sales. You'd have a different email address. I actually met someone with my alter ego's name a year and a half ago. I was at an event in the States and I saw Paul Franks written down. I was like, how on earth do they know about my alter ego? Turns out this guy there was called Paul Franks, but Paul Franks was the guy from accounts and Paul Whedon was, was the sales guy. Nice. So Paul Franks was the stern one, whereas Paul Whedon was the proactive, positive sales guy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Is there a piece of advice that has stood you in really good stead from the very beginning? Always about cash. Make sure you keep that money rolling in. If you've done the work on time, get paid on time. Or in theory, get paid in advance. Have payment schedule set up with your customers. That was certainly one of the things when we were doing projects. Always make sure that customers paying you. Because my logic was they'd be upset if you didn't deliver something on time. Yet they seem to think it's okay not to pay on time. So I think that's one of those good things. The other one is know what it is that you do as a business. There were sort of three chapters in the life of Federation. And the first chapter was 2007 to 2011. And that was anything that sounded fun and we could get a good fee for, we'd do. And that was great. That was really interesting, but it's very hard to scale. I do a talk on revenue modeling, coming up with your business model. And I show one of my graphs from the revenue. And the first four years, it just sort of oscillated around the same sort of mark. And then 2011, we changed the entire model to monthly recurring retainer-based stuff. And you just saw this meteoric rise. We grew at 80% year on year for three years straight just by changing that model. We then tweaked that model for the last four years of the business and really, again, saw not quite 80% year on year growth, but consistent growth just because we were really clear on what it was that we did. And if you asked us to do something that wasn't in that model, we wouldn't do it. We'd say that we're not the right company for you, but you never have to say those words. You explain what it is that you do and the customer self-selects that they don't think that it's a good fit. 
Do you really do the work to focus on what your company's actually offering? Yeah, really drill down. So much so that the deal that allowed me to exit the business, we were approached by them in the May. And by the August, we'd signed a one and a half million pound deal with them. And we asked them, so this is one of the things that always strikes me as really funny, is when you're told by a client that you haven't won a deal, you always want to know why. Always ask why to try and learn. How many times have you done it when they've said yes? How many times have you gone to them and say, why did you choose us? Because there's as much information as you can glean from why someone says yes as why they say no. And it turned out the reason they said yes is that we were super direct with what we were going to do. They told us what the problem was. And we said, right, your problem, we understand. This is how what we do is going to solve your problem. And whereas the other people in the tender, it was a competitive tender, there was three others in the process, all said, well, we could do this, we could do that. What would you like us to do? I think that just being really, really clear on what it is that we were doing allowed them to feel confident that we could solve their problem. I heard this on a sales training course once. People don't buy a drill because they want a drill bit. They buy a drill and a drill bit because they want a hole. Customers come to you because they've got a problem they want fixing. They don't necessarily want to think too much about it. And I think your brother said this when you were interviewing him about how much information do you put into a proposal? You know, enough for them to feel confident that you can solve the problem. Too often when you're starting out, it's really easy to go, oh gosh, we can get some money if we do this. But actually, you know, deep down it's a bad fit. It can cause more harm than good so the quicker you work out what it is exactly you're offering clients the better and the quicker you'll bring in that revenue Absolutely. And I'd say now this mentoring that I do, I'm trying to get these mentees to do it before they even start. What is the problem you are solving? Don't talk about any features and functionality. What fundamentally is the problem that exists in your target market? And then work out how you're going to fix it. Too often, I think people come with a business idea for a feature or an app without actually saying, what is the problem that you're fixing in the market? And what did you learn about pricing your service when you were self-employed? Don't be too cheap. The services that we offered lent us towards financial services companies and they were just less price sensitive. But I think what to learn is how much will the market allow me to charge versus how much do I need to charge in order to cover my costs and make a bit of profit? You know, So it's the top down, bottom up pricing model. But actually, whenever we did any of that pricing, it always came out at the same number. So I think sometimes it's an art, not a science. And when you are pitching to new clients for new business, a lot of people just seem to focus on price. But do you have any advice around that? Never focus on the price because if you're differentiating on price, it's a race to the bottom. I think the balance to strike is to work out how much effort to put in in the pre-sales process to really understand the customer. The more you understand the customer to start with, the better your solution can be. So if you really understand their problem, then you're probably more likely to win. But the flip side is people are always concerned about the fact that, well, if they don't win, they've done a whole bunch of free work. And I think that's where creating a niche for yourself or focusing on a particular sector or segment of the market really pays dividends because you're not necessarily inventing things each time from scratch. You're building on this pool of knowledge. So if you always focus on financial services firms you don't have to learn about a new industry each time you go and pitch you deal with financial services companies so you've got a really good base understanding of that industry and you've got those economies of scale yeah and then it makes training of your staff easier i think that's one of the things is try and specialize where you can 
I think that's exactly what I'm learning now, that being industry agnostic is a blessing, but also a curse because you lose those economies of scale. And at the beginning of a startup, you do need those efficiencies. <laughs> yeah, but but I think there's a difference between scaling up a business that's going to have tens, hundreds of employees to being a one-man band or a smaller company where you've got a few members of staff. Because actually, I do think you can still have a very good business and be able to have that industry agnostic approach. It's, it's fun and interesting. It depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to scale up a business, everything needs to be repeatable. So therefore, you probably need to focus in on a market. But actually, if you're prepared to pay slightly more for your staff because you need slightly more specialized employees and actually you can afford to have that variety. What did you learn about working with other people when you were self-employed and how important is trust? Oh, tr trust is the most important thing of all. You have to trust the people you work with and trust has to be implicit. If you can't trust someone, you have to get rid of them. But what did I learn about working with people? I think I've learned more about it since being out of the business because I think my experience had been as the boss for so long that so much stuff was implied and I've realized that since stopping being the boss and being cog in the machine actually stuff needs to be explicit you need to tell people things explicitly and you need to tell them regularly like with any relationship actually relationships break down because of poor communication and I think there were some pretty major mess ups towards the end of my time at the business, largely because of some external circumstances. The cards that fate dealt me in 2018 would have challenged most people. But I think the byproduct of that meant that we stopped communicating at all. So the limited communication went to practically zero communication and that unsettled people. People didn't know what was happening and that caused all sorts of problems. So I think working with people is you've got to communicate with them. And if you're not sure how much is enough, wait for them to tell you that you're telling them too much. And I don't think anyone will ever think that. I never shared the finances until very, very late on in the business and people much prefer it. And whereas now all the organizations I work in, they're all really open about the finances. That was a real eye-opener. So I think the communication element was something that I've certainly taken into roles subsequently. And given that you have now sold the company, what was it that encouraged you to do that? It was a number of things, really. So the business was scaling quite well through essentially organic growth. but what happens is you win a load more work you expand it takes you some time to adjust to that expansion you then they talk about the phases of teaming from storming norming performing so you go into this storming phase where you've had a, a whole bunch of changes all of those behaviors and how the organization is from the, the state that it was in to the state that it's now in becomes normalized so you're norming and then once everyone's used to the way in which things are operating, you get into the performing stage where you're really cooking on gas. Everyone knows exactly what their role is within the organization. But in a startup or a company that's scaling, it's very rare that you get to that performing stage. So you're constantly going from storming where everyone's trying to work out where their position is to the norming phase, just about to get performing. And then you go and win another deal, have to take on more members of staff. And then you go back to the storming phase. And we've done that cycle three or four times. 
And the way you solve that, you put in a layer of management and or you hire ahead of your plan. But when you're funding that essentially every penny as the sole shareholder of the business, every penny that we'd spent on that meant that that was a penny less than that I could pay myself in order to support that. And I'd done that for many, many years. And I got to the stage, I think, whereby the next jump was going to require external investment or or I had to sell. So you you could go and take a bank loan out, but that's banks. They're not brilliant now, but in 2017, 2018, they still weren't interested. So where I got to was I can sell the business or I can go and take on external investment. Taking on external investment changes the dynamic of a business. I'd always tried not to be accountable to myself. From 2011 onwards, I had a mentor and a non-exec. So not sure if you're familiar with sort of corporate structures, but essentially the MD isn't really accountable to anyone except the shareholders. But when the MD is the sole shareholder, they can mark their own homework. And they're like, oh, you did really, really well, even if you didn't do particularly well. So I had an external mentor who's now a great friend of mine to really try and keep me honest. But the structure when you take on investment changes significantly because you're beholden to shareholders. I'd be taking on quite a significant investment, which meant I would be giving over quite a large percentage of the business. So I wouldn't be the sole person in charge anymore. I would be accountable. I wasn't ready to make that decision. And and when you sell the business, you take more money off the table. So you actually sell the business and you get that money as opposed to when you take on investment, you don't take any of that money, you plow it back into the business and decided that actually on balance, selling the business was a good time. I'd run it for 12 years. I'd really enjoyed it. It afforded me a great lifestyle. I'd learned a huge amount along the way and it felt like the journey had run its natural course. And I wanted to ask that now you're in a salaried position in a hugely successful global organisation, what is your perspective on the two types of employment? There are peaks and pits of both. It's all about the right salaried role. Being your own boss, that phrase is a bit of a misnomer in itself, is that you're not your own boss. Everyone is ultimately responsible for something to someone else. So when you're the MD, you've got to look out for your staff, you're responsible for delivering the work to your customers. So actually, you're not the boss, you're just slightly higher up the greasy pole, as it were. And I think, yeah, there are some real benefits of being the MD, running your own show, compared to perhaps being a salaried employee. And I might say this in a pre-COVID world, because it does depend on the organisation you work for. I'm fortunate in that a lot of the things that I loved about being an MD, I've now got at Salesforce. There's such a flexible work environment. They're so supportive of all of the things that you want to do. And they hire people because they think they're good and they're going to help make a difference in the company. And so they set them pretty loose parameters. You've got to help deliver the sales numbers. You go about it the way that you think is best and work where you want, work when you want. You can work from home, work from the office. And I think a lot of those benefits now most people have. So I think day-to-day lines between being the boss and being the employee are slightly less clear. It's feast or famine though, being the boss, in that if you have a great year, you get paid a lot of money. If you have a bad year, you don't get paid a lot of money. I mean, I loved it for the variety. I'm very fortunate I've got that in my current role. So there are some things that I do miss about it. If I'd run out of holiday, I just gave myself more holiday in the holiday system. Which Amazing. Why not? <laughs> but you could do that because you've got the ultimate flexible role. You're measured by the success of the business and its ability to continue to operate. And so if you can still deliver what you need for the business to work, only working 12 hours a week, that is brilliant. If you have to spend 120 hours a week doing it, then you need to do that. That's the real difference is that I had a couple of days off and I haven't looked at my work phone. That's the difference. 
Amazing. Well, you've definitely earned that. Is there any other golden nuggets of advice that you'd want to share with somebody starting out this year? Everyone at the moment is is understandably wary. And there's a great Warren Buffett quote, which is, be wary when others are greedy, be greedy when others are wary. It is amazing the number of opportunities that have come out of lockdown. Look at all of the booze delivery kits, the craft boxes, all of these things that people have had to come out with, sometimes maybe as necessity because they've lost their job. Others as a result of just looking at what's going on and thinking that is an opportunity for me. Because when things are going well, those opportunities aren't as easy to spot because you're not thinking that you need to spot opportunities, you're just enjoying stuff. It's funny you say that because I think the Chinese symbol or symbols for crisis equal danger and opportunity. Yeah, entrepreneurs are built to exploit opportunity. And so don't be reckless, but at the same time, you've got to take some risks. I do think now is an incredibly exciting time to be starting a business. You could look at it rather fatalistically and go, well, it can't really get much worse. But actually, I think that's the wrong attitude. I think you're building those foundations for when things start to get better. And hopefully you can you can ride that cresting wave. Absolutely. And it's amazing when you're coming off rock bottom in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm certainly not alone in the fact that I've lost my job this year and I'm starting a company. What opportunities you find that you never even thought were out there. It's a total shit show. So, you know, can it get any worse? Yeah, this year, I mean, let's hope it's just going to get better from here on in. Thank you, Paul, so much. It's been great. Well, thank you very much for having me. I hope some of this helps people on their journey. It's been really interesting to hear from Paul how whatever the depth of a crisis, there is always an opportunity for business in there somewhere. And it's just waiting to be maximised by those who have the courage to take that risk. If you'd like to contact Paul, you'll find all of his details plus a recap of the advice he has shared in the show notes. If you'd like to submit a question for a future guest, please head to the SpeakPipe link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to How to Start Up, hosted by me, Juliet Fallowfield, founder of PR consultancy for startups, Fallowfield and Mason. I hope these conversations offer you some confidence, encouragement and reassurance that you're on the right track. I would be delighted if you'd rate, review and share this podcast with anyone else who might be starting a company in 2020.